Hi there, welcome to Stoke to Be Here. My name's Laura and I'm the back half of Stella Tandem, a record-breaking attempt to cycle around the world in 2022. And in part of the lead up to this trip, we're talking to people from the worlds, worlds of endurance and cycling. Um, and somebody that's definitely from both of these worlds is, is Rob Gardner, um, who is a ultra-distance cyclist, the um, holder, well, briefly the holder of the Europe <laughs> record. Very <Instagram>. briefly. <laughs> um, but um, he kind of makes up a hat trick having spoken to Lee Timmis and Ian Walker already, um, but has many, many other adventures under his belt. So um, yeah, uh, we'll get on to hearing a bit more of those. Good evening, Rob. <laughs> good evening. Thanks for having me here. It's good to chat. No problem at all. So the kind of obvious first question is, um, how did it all start? Start? Were you an avid cyclist growing up? Were you super sporty at school or was it something you kind of stumbled into as a lot of people seem to do? There's, there's two answers to that. I was asked that recently and, and it ties in, one of the answers ties in definitely to what you're doing. So I grew up on the back of a tandem and, and I think you can you can tie it back to that, you know, if you if you grow up on the back of a tandem, you do tend to spend quite a bit of time cycling after that. But it was always just a, a sort of a means to an end for me. I was never thinking about anything other than where I was trying to go on the bike and not in the sense of breaking records. I literally mean just, just getting around. Um, but it did change. I was given a book uh, when I was, oh, how old was I? Probably about 22, something like that for Christmas and it's got nothing to do with cycling but it sort of it, it triggered something that then led to a whole series of events and the books uh called In Xanadu by William Dalrymple which I don't know if you've ever read but it's basically the tale of him having left university so similar time of life of where I was at that point and he set off to follow the the old Silk Road and this was in the late 80s as the world was changing quite significantly um, and he was looking for uh, Xanadu, which was Kublai Khan's kind of ancient capital of his kingdom. Um, and he basically retraces the Silk Road to all of Middle East, Central Asia, and ends up in Chengdu in China, kind of behind the Iron Curtain at this point. And it's a, it's a fabulous read, but it really just inspired me to go and explore those areas. But I, he did it all in public transport, and I've never really been that keen on just sitting on trains and buses the whole time, I'm a bit too active for that. And walking, I do like walking, but it takes a while to walk from, you know, the UK to China. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, cycling was naturally just the, the most obvious choice. Um, and I started kind of researching and planning it. And at the time I was, I was working overseas in, in South Korea, teaching English. So I saved up some money and recruited a couple of friends uh, and set off about a year later um, and ended up cycling from the UK. I actually got to India. I flew a little bit between... Kazakhstan and, and India, but uh, ended up cycling, I think it's about 11,000 kilometers, seven months of travel. And, and it just kind of went from there. I did another tour after that and then another one and then thought I was kind of done and and got a job. And then, uh, no, I wasn't. And I got into sort of more ultra and bikepacking and it's, yeah, it's just, it hasn't stopped. That was a decade ago now. So it's just going... <laughs> Yeah, there's there's definitely an addictive element to it, isn't there? So who oh, yeah, who are you who are you on the the tandem with? Was that your parents or older oh yeah, so, or, yeah. so I'm I'm the older brother of two. Uh, so initially it was just when I was very young, it was just me on the back of a tandem, and then my brother in a child seat on the back of I think it was Mum's bike. Oh, and then eventually, when he when he got a bit older, we for a, a few years there were two tandems with a with a brother on the back of each. 
Oh, uh, fantastic. <laughs> I don't I don't think we were very good. Um, but, you know, you're talking about stokers. I remember distinctly going uphill and pedaling backwards and winding my dad up. <laughs> I don't think you should do that on your world record. <laughs> no, I, th- I, th- I think Steve would have me off the bat pretty quickly if I tried that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, what a fab place to start, though. And I, I think just even just sat on the back of a bike probably builds confidence and kind of awareness. And yeah, just having your bum on the seat all, all adds up, doesn't it? So. Yeah, it sounds like a, a fab fab start out. And then you, you say um, that you were working career and things like that before. So you, were you already quite well travelled before you set out? Was that something that w- was quite familiar to you? Yeah, I think so. Travel was probably part of my life before cycling was, and then they sort of merged, and now cycling's just as big a part. But I mean, I work I work and travel as alongside my other stuff. So um, yeah, before I headed to South Korea, I'd already travelled a fair bit. And, and actually, when I left university, my only my only kind of rule I had when I was looking for a job was I want to go work somewhere overseas. And, and bizarrely, I narrowed it down to I got I think I got two interviews. One was teaching English in South Korea, which is obviously a very developed country. It's basically like kind of an Asian version of America. It's, it's really westernized. Uh, great. But, you know, it's, it's quite familiar in that sense. Uh, and then the other one was teaching in a school in Somaliland on the Horn of Africa. And those were the two options. And I didn't, I fortunately didn't get the Somaliland job because I think I would have been way out of my depth. It's, uh, that would have been quite an intense experience. Yeah, I bet. I bet that would have been, yeah, quite a, quite a culture shock in a lot of ways. Yeah. So planning your, your trip along the Silk Road, I mean, that's, it's increasingly travelled nowadays on, on bicycle, but there's still not a huge amount of kind of information out there. How did you... How did you find information at that time? Did you could you find any information about cycling through those sort of areas, or was it few and far between? Yeah, it, it definitely has changed. It? it doesn't feel that long ago, but when I talk to people now who are planning it, the resources they have are definitely better than what I had in. This was 2013. We did it, um, and at that point, I was still navigating off paper maps for for like quite a large chunk of it, um, and the the only resources online were quite patchy blogs so you'd find like one really good article that had like a really detailed description of one stretch of road and then it would just end and they would just either you know they didn't want to talk about the road from then on so you'd I don't know is it any good you know so it was quite difficult to piece it together and I remember sitting in internet cafes just trying to work out where like the 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 chaikhanas the tea rooms were in the Kazakh desert and referencing the old Soviet maps and the names that, that were in the blogs and putting down right well there's a tea room there uh, and I found it the other day, actually, you know, if you ever go on Google, they have this feature called My Maps, which they still have, but no one uses it anymore. Um, and I went and built a map of dropping pins at every single tea room and every single kind of well I'd found. And <laughs> it was actually quite, it's quite fun. It's part of the experience, you know, planning these kind of things. Um, and that's still there. I just think there's a lot more information now. Yeah, <laughs> I might even have a dig around for that because yeah, there's there there is quite a bit in various sites and blogs and things, but it's still kind yeah. of an area of the world that yeah, and we're um we're still in the kind of thick of route planning at the moment. So yeah, there's a lot, a lot more to be done in that respect. <laughs> and how did you? How did you find kind of the technicalities of, of, you know, getting visas, border crossings, things like that? Because you've obviously done quite a, a bit of, of, of this now. Have you got any tips or tricks of, of um, yeah, the kind of crossing into different countries? 
just be patient basically <laughs> <laughs> i mean the the amount of visas i've I've, I've had to get and then the ones I, you only really remember the ones you've been rejected for so uh, i had a couple of bad experiences one time i wasn't cycling this was a few years before i tried to go into turkmenistan uh and i got given duff advice by the embassy they said well, if you go with this letter of invitation if you go to this border crossing you'll definitely be able to collect the visa um and it, and it turned out I, you couldn't so i got across i crossed no man's land from iran um, and it was Friday, so Friday prayers, they just shut up shop on the Iranian side. So I was stuck on the Turkmen side with them adamantly saying there's no visa. Uh, and I was backpacking at this point. And uh, I remember they, they literally turned out my entire backpack with all my belongings to search it. Um, and then they said, right, well, you're going to have to sleep here until Iran lets you back in, which fortunately they did. Um, but I was slept under the watch of a probably, I guess maybe 18 year old uh, Turkmen soldier. Um, showing me images of their like supreme leader on his on his mobile phone and playing Turkmen music that was yeah that was 12 hours that you know you remember not getting that visa <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, that yeah. was just a, a bizarre experience um and and yeah there's been others like I, the reason why I couldn't cycle to China in the end on my first trip I did get there but I got to the uh actually it was Kyrgyzstan I think it was where I was applying from and I arrived the week they decided to stop issuing uh, oh. visas to non-nationals in Kyrgyzstan. And I found out from another cyclist. So I, I don't know if you, you sort of found this when you travel, but there are certain hostels that just basically fill with cyclists in Central Asia because they're, you know, when you meet people on the road, they say, oh, you should stay at this hostel. It's good value. There's other cyclists there. So every, you know, consequently, every single one of these hostels is full of cyclists. So I, I got there and I was sort of prepping for my Chinese visa and I hadn't shaved in probably five months. So I bought like a really cheap Bic razor and I couldn't even find any shaving foam. So I sort of shaved myself oh. with like some soap <laughs> and the cheapest Bic razor. It was horrible. And then just as I came out by the bathroom, bloody, you know, <laughs> this cyclist came back into the hostel and was like, you're not going to get a visa. They've just stopped. So it was, you know, that experience of <laughs> being so close, jumping through all these bizarre hoops. Cause you have to, I should have, should have explained, you have to shave for your Chinese visa photo which if anyone's ever uh got it in central asia you'll know that but uh, you wouldn't know if you hadn't done it yeah okay yeah no that's interesting actually luckily we're not planning to go through china because um stevie my front half has a humongous beard and i, I, I don't know if that's might not be a rule anymore straw. but yeah back back in the <laughs> back day, in the certainly day. When I did it, yeah, everyone I'm, was clean shaven yeah every, it all changes all the time doesn't it so yeah yeah we've got got a lot of work to do trying to keep up to date with that sort of thing um and then as, as well, you, so you, aside from that trip, you seem to have been all over on various other trips as well. Um, is, is there anything, anywhere you haven't been that you want to go to? And how have, you, how have you chosen where to go? I mean, there's obviously a whole world out there, but yeah, it's, um, you, you seem to have seen quite a lot of it from what I can see. <laughs> uh, I've never been to South America, and that's the big kind of blank space for me um I, I think well i mean i've never cycled in australia and new zealand i went as a kid but because i've been it's just you know it's not gonna hasn't quite have the same allure but south america definitely i really want to go at some point and i got quite close when i was cycling down through north america i originally intended to just keep going keep going keep going um but it sort of ran out of the, the headspace and the time and also money <laughs> so you know yeah. reality kicks in eventually um but uh, yeah, I think in terms of where you choose it, so much of it's just spontaneous. When you're doing long tours, 
Um, and, and this is, it's been a while since I've done a long tour, but so much of it's dictated by you kind of the natural route. Like where I often talk, talk to people because I work in African travel. So I'm often talking to cyclists who want to go and cycle in Africa. And more often than not, they want to cycle the length of Africa. And I'm like, well, there's only two routes. There is literally only two routes because there's, you know, this border's closed, this country won't lay you into this country. And you, once you plot it, there are two, pretty much two fixed routes you can do. And there's so many things like that where you realize that even though the world seems so open and developed, when you look at the infrastructure and the legalities and the practicalities and the seasons, there's actually not that many long routes you can do. And I'm sure you've come across this planning. Yeah. Your, your you'll probably find you're probably choosing between two routes, really. Um, yeah, places. pretty much. I mean, two routes, yeah. one with a couple of variations. But yeah, yeah, it's. There's not a lot. So I think for, for longer tours, it does come back to that. In the end, it's, it's just pra practicalities. And then, you, you know, spontaneous decisions like when I was in America, I realized I wasn't going to make it to South America. I was like, I kind of really want something a bit more exotic than Florida because it's nice and it's comfortable, but it's Florida. You know, it's not <laughs> this is not really what travel is. So I caught a plane to Cuba and spent three weeks cycling around Cuba. Um, and, and that was brilliant. But I had never thought about it until I found myself in this this sort of position where I was like, I want to go somewhere a bit more exotic. So I think you just sometimes have to just be spontaneous about it. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. Um, and also the the other end of the spectrum, it was um, your Europe record where <laughs> you on a very strict time scale with a, a very strict route. How did that come about? It seemed like quite a almost sudden jump from all the touring and adventures to right I'm going to go and break a world record oh yeah definitely uh, I, if if I did it again or if anyone asked me for advice I would not recommend doing it the way I necessarily did it um it's sort of yeah do I say not I did because <laughs> it was quite a sudden transition but it was a weird realization that I, I had started doing a lot more stuff that was verging on ultra endurance and then eventually found myself doing what you, you'd probably consider ultra endurance and it was because i had a job and i could only do two weeks at a time off and you just end up pushing yourself and then when you push yourself either you hate it or you love it and i loved it i really enjoyed the physical side of it for the first time ever because you know you asked earlier was i sporty at school no not at all <laughs> like i was active and i was outdoorsy but i wasn't i wasn't sporty i never the idea of training or you know pushing pushing your body in, in a kind of repetitive manner just never occurred to me. Um, so when I found it with cycling, I actually really enjoyed it. So I started yeah, getting into the ultra endurance side and then also simultaneously around this time, this was back in was it about 2017, 2018, there were a lot of people breaking the, the cross-continental records. So Mark Beaumont broke the Africa one and then the round the world one. And then, you know, Sean and Lee broke the, the cross Europe one. Um, and there was someone else. I'm sure there's another one. Oh, I think Jonas did the Eurasia one as well, Jonas Dijkman. Oh, and he okay. did the, he also did the Cross Europe one before. And he then went and did uh, the length of the Americas. So there's, there's all these things going on. And I start to look at the numbers. And I don't know if you've had this, but you, you see the numbers and you think, you know, I was cycling 200k a day on my holiday the other day when I cycled down to we did a did a big ride with a friend from the English Channel to the Black Sea and that was nearly 200k a day horribly ill-prepared and and I look at you know Sean's record that he did and I think it was he averaged about 260k a day now you know half of that is in Russia on Russian highways and that is hellish but 
that's not crazy when you think, well, that's only two and a half, three hours more cycling a day. And I was staying in hotels. I was actually, I was getting enough sleep when I was, when I was doing that. And of course it is, a, it's a lot harder than that, you know, every extra 10, 20 K a day, it takes exponentially more out of you. And you start to get into the realms of sleep deprivation and not getting recovery meals in and recovery time. And it, it does get way harder, but it, you know, it's, I don't, if you do any other sports, you don't go and do park run and suddenly think, oh, I'm just, I'm close to world record pace on my 5k. That, that doesn't happen. So it, it's, you know, it's only in ultra endurance cycling is certainly at that time where the, I thought the distances were, or the speeds were kind of achievable for people who put their mind to it. And yeah, as it turned out, it, it was achievable, <laughs> not for, it wasn't going to stand up for very long, but it was achievable. Yeah, no, um, yeah, no, actually, you're quite right. We, um, that's how we got sucked in was we saw um, the two ladies that hold the tandem record currently um, come in. They came in just before lockdown and we saw them, their amazing effort. And we looked and went, we've done holidays, you know, faster than that pace. <laughs> and that's how the whole thing's now spiraled yeah. out of all proportion. And admittedly, yeah, we won't be doing quite so many miles a day, but. For a little bit longer so it's the sustainability that's that's i think going to be the the key thing i think um and then did you how because i know like for example well both lee timmers and ian walker are massively structured in their approach did you have a very set route did you have you know spreadsheets and plans do you have a lot of support or or was it more of a a more just kind of um, relaxed approach to the planning uh, I was structured, definitely. I think my lack of experience meant that I probably didn't apply that structure as well as I would have liked and have since, you know, where even when I approach a, a race now, you know, you're talking about some of them are only two or three days and, and I'll, I'll definitely structure that and I'll do recce's and, and route plan. I've done like full spreadsheets for those before. Um, and, and I wish I had done more of that for the, for the record. Um, I did, you know, I spent ages planning the route. I spent time like researching it i spent time trying to learn it i find the best way is to to learn the, the kind of the course of a route and then when you get to certain points you think oh okay i remember the next bit and when you're tired that does become difficult um but there yeah there were stretches where i wish i'd done more research uh particularly through russia i had a bit more time researching which roads were sketchy and also um well i mean the main mistake i made was i think i did it the wrong way around really um well, you were my... going uphill, right? <laughs> I've had, some, had someone say that to me, and yeah, I, I laughed, and then I realised they weren't joking. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! And then I, I had to explain. Um, but yeah, fortunately, that's only happened once. Um, no, I, I, I based it on the fact that prevailing winds in the in Europe are southwesterly across the continent generally, um, and I kind of didn't want to finish with the hilliest stuff as well. I thought, well, while you're fresher. I mean, the logic now does seem a bit silly because after the first day, you're not fresh at all. So it doesn't really matter. But the first half of the, the route I planned had about twice as much climbing as the second half. Um, but as it turned out, the, the, the prevailing wind maybe helped on two days. I had a couple of good head, good tailwinds. Um, uh, the, the heat and the hills, I, I don't think it would have mattered being the other way around. I think the... The fact that it's easier cycling in Western Europe than than, easy, than Eastern Europe and faster tarmac probably would have counteracted that. But the main real pain that I wish I'd probably done it the other way was that I had a headwind for the last maybe 1,000, 1,500 kilometres. And by the last 500 kilometres, it was just hideously strong. Mm. Um, and I, I had 
got my uh, research wrong there. So I'd looked up prevailing winds in Norway and Finland and Nordkap particularly, because I'd heard it was so windy and I'd seen that there was a prevailing southerly. And it wasn't until a few days before I started, I decided to look up some wind, you know, familiar with wind flowers? It's where it shows the prevailing wind at different, like it's over a time period, basically okay. where it comes from. Uh, and I looked up some of these and in, I think it's June, July, August, it goes from being a prevailing southerly to a prevailing northerly. Oh, really? Oh. For all of that region. <laughs> yeah. So I basically, yeah, but if, if there's one aspect, I wish I'd, I'd researched a little bit earlier, because at least then I would have made an informed decision. I might have made the same decision, but mm. you always want to make that decision with the right information. And I, yeah. I had overlooked that, which was a shame. Yeah. And I'm sure it's pretty exposed up there too. So yeah, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. And, you, and you know, it. this, this is when you're already struggling. It's, 18 days in when I started, it was probably much before that I started hitting the headwind, but you're completely broken. You've done Russia. <laughs> it's cold. You're in the Arctic Circle. You don't know what sleep is. Not for two reasons. You're not sleeping anymore. And also there's no darkness anymore. So it's just very disorienting to be battering into a headwind for 24 hours a day. <laughs> not much fun. Yes. Yeah, so that was obviously a, a tremendous effort regardless. And yeah, a, a, an epic record to have, even though I know it was um, broken fairly shortly after. But um, you also unofficially as well um, held the seven day record. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is that something, was that in the lead up to the, the Europe record? Am I correct in that? Um, yeah, that, that was completely, that was pretty spontaneous, actually. Um, I, I'd been doing lots of structured training and I just felt like I needed to replicate the record uh, experience a little bit and the, 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 the sort of the day after day toll having targets and just the routine because a lot of the record stuff is just routine um uh, so I, I i was aware of that record um and for people who don't know it's, it's the, the most number of countries you do in seven days um cycle through uh and it's, it's quite a fun record i i think it was more fun because because it was so spontaneous i couldn't i couldn't get the official record because i couldn't have applied to guinness in time um, so I didn't have to worry about any of the paperwork. I didn't have to worry about verifying it. I just had to worry about doing it. And, and the route planning is cool because you're trying to get as, as few kilometers and as few hills into as many countries as possible. So you end up doing like really weird detours, like climbing up to the Albanian border, crossing in the border guards looking at you strangely the first time because you're like a lone guy on a bike. And then when you go out five minutes later, they're looking <laughs> really strangely. <laughs> Um, but great cycling like border regions are actually really interesting because you get these kind of blurring of countries and you start to realize oh it's horribly cliche but borders are entirely artificial um, and but then they're also you know there's physical elements to them so you cycle down like the river valleys and um, and you see where the you know that's the natural border um, so it was really interesting from that perspective and, and it, it did it, it taught me a lot about what I needed to do um, and, and it's it was kind of crazy. I'd done all the, the the training, and I was I felt you know the fittest I'd ever been, but I, I hadn't done big rides because I'd been training mainly through the winter, and I, I I set off to do this over Easter. So I'd done like you know some two hundred k rides, but I was I knew I'd need to do over three hundred, ideally sort of three twenty k a day for the record, um, and that was also what I needed to do for the seven day one. So the first day I did three hundred and thirty k. That was my longest ever ride. Um, and then every day after that, I did over 300k. So it was just, you know, the step up and then the confidence you take from that, it's just phenomenal. I just, by the end of it, I felt physically broken and I felt like I had a lot of learning still to do, but just the confidence was phenomenal. I felt amazing for it. Um, so if anyone's ever looking at doing like a really big 
challenge, certainly a you know several weeks, go and do a little one and do the same kind of intensity for a short time. And it's it's just yeah, it's a really great way to actually train. I, I think all the all the kind of coaches would say, well, no, you're overloading your body. That's way too much. But you you know the, you've got to bring into play the, the psychological element and and the confidence you're going to have and the, and the kind of the lessons you'll learn as well. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, actually, because um, we've actually got I've got some time booked off um, before we go away for us to, to go on a recce trip, partly to, you know, try and do the distance today, but partly just to simply do stuff like try out all the kit and as much as, you know, we've obviously done similar things before, I think, yeah. you know, almost to simulate the amount of miles we'll be doing a day and hopefully we'll be going abroad for that. So as well to experiment with as again we've cycled abroad before but doing it at that pace in a in a different country and just trying to recreate that and yeah it's interesting you say that about coaches as well because if you're training for a marathon they always say oh we don't run anywhere near marathon distance but I think it's a bit different on a a trip like this because yeah it's more about the sustainability than the actual distance I think the the day-to-day so yeah definitely it's good to hear that definitely um and then yeah <laughs> you obviously got the, the the bug for it and moved into kind of ultra racing um and have done quite a few epics there as far as i can see what have what have been your kind of highlight rides as it were what have been your top events you've participated in <laughs> well i haven't actually done that many i mean but i think that's the thing is that you you don't ever do that many because they're so like completely draining and all consuming that <laughs> a couple of years is enough for most people but um i think the, the the best experience i've had so far is probably probably race around rwanda was probably the highlight for me um and I, it was my best finish but it wasn't really because of that it was just the experience was you know it's a phenomenal country to go and cycle around and the landscapes were incredible and just it threw everything at me and i actually enjoyed it which you know i've it, it, there's something different about sort of facing a tropical thunderstorm in Rwanda and battling your way through the mud. Like that's enjoyable adversity versus I tried to do hell of the Northwest this year and pretty much got hypothermia. <laughs> so that's not enjoyable adversity. I can tell you that's horrible. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, there's getting into the right headspace and, and having races that challenge you, but you also still manage to enjoy them is, is really part of it. Yeah, no, definitely. And then do you ever see yourself kind of going back to the, the touring aspect again? Because one thing we get said to us a lot is, oh, why, why you go so fast? Why don't you go slower and meet people and see places? And there's, there's obviously a bit of a balance between touring and racing. And sometimes it feels like there's very little middle ground. Do you think there's still benefits to both or, or is the, the touring saved for, for maybe a retirement, <laughs> a leisurely amble around the world one day? <laughs> yeah, there is. I think um, it's hard. It is hard once you've ingrained the kind of racing side into it to then go back and totally detach. But I find that if I do it with other people, I can still go back into kind of touring mentality. So I did a, um, a tour with a friend uh, last year. Um, just through Wales and the borders there and it was really relaxed slow pace and I actually still enjoyed it um, and I did a charity ride which I helped kind of plan the route for which was Land's End John O'Groats and, and it was mainly non-cyclists and I joined them for a bit of that and I actually I still really enjoyed it um, so I think as long as there's other people there and I and I kind of go on their pace then that, that I don't mind doing that and a lot of people think oh you mustn't you know must hate cycling other people's speed it's like no I, 
I actually really enjoy cycling at their speed. I just, I know if I go on my own, I, it's very hard because I've got no one to pace me to go slower and enjoy it because, you know, you're, you're so used to racing now. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and, and kind of another interesting tip that I, I pulled up from your website was um, the 100 Climbs Club, which is um, Simon Warren has the infamous 100 Climbs book that it looks like you've been picking off over the, the past couple of years where, where travel has been less restricted. Um, you've looked like you've done a few of those now. Has there been anywhere that's, because they're all UK based, has there been anywhere that's kind of surprised you in the UK? Because we often find on Audax rides and things like that, you end up in a, a nook and cranny that you'd have never gone to otherwise um, on, on UK soil. And I just wondered if there'd been any highlights from that. Uh, yeah, I think um, probably the bit that surprised me the most. I've done about, I think I've done about 25 now. I haven't actually written up the blogs for all 25 because <laughs> I got a little bit distracted by other stuff, but uh, I've done about 25. I think the ones... I mean, I've mainly done the Welsh ones now. So I've done some of the lakes, I've done Pets and Pennines ones. I've done most of the Welsh ones and I've done some in the Southwest. But the ones that, that probably surprised me most were the, um, the it, was, it was the fact that you could have such diversity of climbs and big climbs in a small area of Southern Wales that I already thought I knew pretty well because it's not that far from my house. I live in the, in the Cotswolds in Sarancester. So, you know, Southern Wales is kind of on my doorstep. So I thought I knew that area pretty well. And then I went and tried to actually plan routes to link up those climbs. And they all go in different directions. I and mean, it's actually really difficult to link them all together. But if you do it, you see just incredible landscapes. Like within, you know, a couple of hours of riding of one another, you've got these amazing big climbs. Um, so I, yeah, I, I just want to go back there. Once the weather gets better, I just want to go back and just keep riding there because it, it, you know I'm here I, I get like a 50 meter climb and there I can go and do you know 200 meter climb and it's fantastic yeah well Wales has plenty of, of very good hills um which is, is great <laughs> with fresh legs in the middle of an audac sometimes it's a bit a bit more testing but uh, the scenery is just fantastic yeah, there. <laughs> that is true <laughs> certainly the, the gradients are very unforgiving <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's lots of lots of surprises but no it's, it's all good it's good fun um and then yeah you mentioned your, your, your website and your blogs um you've also got some um pretty good recordings as well like um vlogs as it were from your europe record and other bits and bobs too I just wondered how how are you going about recording that sort of thing on on the bike? Is it just on a phone? Is it an action camera? It looked at one point you kind of got headphones, and I don't know if you're using a mic, but it's come out really good quality, and it's obviously something we're quite interested in because we're quite determined to kind of get some footage along the way and and try and involve as many people as possible who are watching us. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not certainly not very professional with any of this. I, I've <laughs> never tried any like YouTube stuff or anything like that, or, or even really podcasting. Um, but the one thing I found works for me is I just record Instagram stories on my phone as I'm as I'm doing the the kind of the races or the rides or whatever, because I find that it's it doesn't take any brain power to think about it. So I can literally just flick on my camera and talk to it. Um and and that's probably for me the most natural way. Because I think if you start recording loads of GoPro footage and you start trying to worry about editing. I just, I, I can't do that when I'm on the bike. Like I'd have to, I'd have to think about the shots that you do. And I, and I've, I, I really respect people who do it. Like I was talking to Josh Ibert recently about the, the, the shots he was doing for, um, 
the GB Duro stuff when he did the set the was it the self-sufficient version when you're completely they had they had to do the, the whole thing with their own supplies and in lockdown. Mm. And he recorded on GoPro during that and also during like weather where he was verging on hypothermia and just it was horrific. And that's just you know having the the headspace and the self-control to think actually wait I need to get something for my documentary that's going to be edited after I finish. I, I can't do that. I just I, That's just way too much for me. So I have a huge amount of respect for people who do that. But for me, it's just, yeah, turn on the phone, talk for under a minute, because I know Instagram stories, I can't talk for longer than a minute and just yeah, get it done and upload. Yeah, cool. Well, it comes across very well. So yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for the Instagram stories. And I've been dabbling with the, the GoPro, but yeah, I've had that. I don't have that much tenacity because yeah it's in the middle of the night and it's raining and I'm shattered and I'm just like I can't I just can't <laughs> the camera stays uh, well tucked away <laughs> I think if if you want to see Instagram stories well done Sofian Sahili's uh singing to a camera when he's like in first or second place in a race <laughs> is incredible oh, um, yeah that's that's amazing if you haven't seen his Instagram stories definitely check them out yeah, yeah I'll have to go and have really a funny as well yeah 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 I have been known to do some tandem karaoke to keep Steve awake <laughs> so that's definitely got potential for Instagram stories <laughs> fabulous um and then I will mention um, briefly as well, we're hoping uh, to, to make use of your services in terms of follow my ride, which is uh, follow online. Follow my challenge. Follow my challenge. I always say <laughs> follow okay. my ride. I don't know why. It's, That's it's, Yeah, follow my challenge. Because um, obviously, yeah, it involves more than just rides as well, um, which is a... I suppose a, a mapping site isn't it where you get a, a dot watching site where you get a tracker you get a dot and friends family followers can see wherever said person is um and yeah as it's <laughs> following a challenge because it involves more than just cycle racing so I wondered if there's been any particularly exciting events you've been able to watch through doing that has there been <laughs> anything you've been kind of fixated by watching watching the dots on I, I'm wildly addicted to, to dot watching, especially when uh, I, you know I've got close friends who who race. And and recently, I had an entire weekend just wiped out because uh, my best friend is, is is Andrew Phillips, who just won two VS. So he he was doing you know two volcano sprint, and I was trying to have a normal life away from it, <laughs> and I just couldn't do anything for a whole weekend. So I am yeah wildly addicted to, to dot watching, but I haven't really been following anything other than cycling on there. Um, we've had a few requests for some stuff. Um, actually, had some people inquire about uh, a car rally recently. Um, but you know, it's, it's, you can you can pretty much track anything. So, uh, it, but it's generally people wanting to do running, walking, cycling. Yeah, I think over in Europe they've done some stuff with yachts as well. Um, we haven't done anything like that here. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it is generally people just wanting to head out and, and you know, have an adventure somewhere um, or go for a race. Um, so it's, it's great fun being involved with the kind of people you meet. They're just like-minded, generally quite eccentric individuals. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really good fun. Yeah, no, I, I kind of thought that might be the case that, yeah, you do get some pretty interesting stories come up and yeah, it's... Um pretty exciting to watch so hopefully <laughs> our challenge will be um well watched as well 
Um, just before we, we tie everything up, Rob, um, I've got a little bit of tandem trivia questions. Uh, I promise they're not too That's awful. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've actually answered the first one already, which would have been, have you ever ridden tandem? But yeah, you've, you've confirmed that. Um, my next one would be, um, if you could ride a tandem with anybody at all, alive, dead, we've even had fictional characters, who would you put on your tandem with you? Oh, that's so difficult. Um, <laughs> I'm also like I'm always assuming I'm on the front of the tandem as well because I'm I'm six well, five. Well, it's so up I'm, to you. Yeah, that's, that's but, <laughs> but I feel like I I would want them to do the, the steering because I find it very unnerving that I would. I'm now choosing someone who I deeply probably respect, and then I'm putting their life in my hands. So that's terrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh God, that's hard. I don't know. Um, so many cliched answers I could give you about, you know, like Nelson Mandela and stuff like that. But Nelson Mandela would be terrible on the front of a tandem. Um, <laughs> That's pretty small as well, isn't it? Yeah. Difficult. Um, you know what? I'd actually, I'd quite like it. I'm going to, am I allowed to make the tandem a three person tandem? Yeah, why not? Yeah, make it. So I'd like, to, I'd like to do it with the two guys I did my first ever tour on. So Andrew and Josh. So we were on our own bikes and we had a lot of fun on our own bikes. I cannot imagine how much fun we would have had on a three-man tandem. <laughs> it would just been absolute bedlam. Um, I think that would have been brilliant. So, um, I don't know where, what, I don't know the order. I think I would have gone on the front, Andrew in the middle and the Josh at the back in height order. So have like yeah. a, a descending tandem. Maybe. But um, that's there, no one famous, but that would be wonderful. I would have quite liked that. Oh no, that's that's cool. That's an amazing idea. Um, there's actually um, uh, three three um, Audaxes who many a year ago took a triplet, you know, three person tandem on on Paris Best Paris, which is Jim Hopper, Drew Buck, and I forget who the third person was. But they actually <laughs> um, swapped seats as they went along, so they they kind of rotated as they went round. And I think that you know those those two themselves are quite infamous, shall we say, in the Audax world. So I think they had an absolute whale of time. I think Drew Bloke but Bloke turned up with a string of onions around his neck and all sorts. <laughs> I think that yeah, is think actually you, a pretty cool idea. You have to get on well with the with the other people, don't you? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, probably even more so than yeah, just with two of you on the same bike. <laughs> Amazing. So me and C say we're joined by the frame on the, the tandem. Is there anything? On your rides that you're joined by the frame to, as in, is there anything um, that you can't do without, that you always take with you, that's either a bit of a creature comfort or essential bit of kit, or is there a bit of food that you always like to, to find on the road? Um, what would you say your kind of top item is? Oh, that's a very good question. And, and that's something that changes when you go from touring to ultra endurance because yeah, you, you, yeah. <laughs> you, you realize what you really can't do without. And it turns out you can do without pretty much everything um, apart from a Wahoo and uh, <laughs> that's it. Um, I think that the thing that I struggle without and I've realized and also kind of miss most uh, is probably good coffee. And I know that sounds terrible, um, but you know, you're smashing all these caffeine tablets and having cheap coffees. And all I want when I get off a ride is just have a nice coffee that I can enjoy that I'm drinking for the flavour rather than just the amount of caffeine in it. Um, so, yeah, that's probably the one thing. That if, I if I ever have time, if I'm not racing, then I'll make sure I try and have a, have a good coffee. I'll even take a stove if I'm camping out and try and make something nice. 
no that's fair and it, it actually one of the tandem ladies that was one of their thing they couldn't do without and they actually took a coffee maker with them around the world but um yeah we're not big kind of coffee fiends so I reckon that's where we'll get the edge on them is by not taking the coffee maker <laughs> <laughs> oh you might you might need that coffee by the end though <laughs> there is that actually yeah to be fair <laughs> amazing and then just one final question um why should we cycle around the world together on a tandem and break the world record uh well i mean why because you want to presumably is the first reason <laughs> <laughs> but i mean it's the kind of thing that and and i'm going to uh relate this back to myself because that's very self-centered to me but also my point of reference so my logic was that uh if i didn't do it I probably, I could, I, you know, I might just get one chance to break a world record or to go for a world record. Um, and and you, if you don't take that chance then, you never know. You don't know what might come up in the, in the future. It's a big thing. And for you, it's even bigger. Like I did a continent, that's three weeks, basically. Like, yeah, you, you're doing a lot more than that. So if you've got the opportunity, I think the, the, the why is, well, you can, so do it. Um, and I, yeah, I think seize it and, and enjoy it because you know probably not going to do it twice let's be honest <laughs> yeah i think i think once will be enough yeah. um, <laughs> that's amazing thank you so much rob it's been great to chat with you um really that's appreciate okay. all, all your tips and advice there and yeah um hopefully you'll be be following our challenge around the world too <laughs> well definitely yeah <laughs>